Osiris, who illuminates the king, the lord of the two lands, this men Matre, the justified, says, O you Ushabti, if the Osiris, the son of Ra, Seti, the justified, is counted on or called to do work or drafted to fulfill any tasks in the underworld, to till the fields, to irrigate the banks, or to transport sand from east to west, since hardships come in the course of such duties, if at any time I am called, say, Behold, I am present. Inscription on a figure found in the tomb of Pharaoh Seti I, discovered in October 1817. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 42, Tomb Raider. In the year 1279 BCE, 3,089 years before the beginning of the second decade, a grand royal funeral occurred in a sandy desert valley on the west bank of the Nile, a place that's known to us today as the Valley of the Kings. The departed was the richest and most powerful man in Egypt, the pharaoh known as Seti I, who had died, possibly of a heart condition, at age about 39. We know little about the funeral itself, but if it was anything like the ancient Egyptian funerals we do know about, it must have been quite a spread. To say that Egyptian kings were laid to rest in style is an understatement. They were buried with mountains of priceless objects, from wine and perfumes and alabaster stone jugs to canisters of food, little statues of the deceased called Ushabtis, even things like chariots, boats, weapons, and mummified dogs and cats. We know about this kind of stuff principally from the astonishing loot that was discovered in the tomb of a relatively minor king, Tutankhamun, which was found intact in 1922. At some point after Seti I was laid to rest in the magnificent tomb that had been constructed for him, the grave was broken into and ransacked by robbers. We're not sure when it might have happened during a period of civil war that racked Egypt about 200 years later, or it might have happened only shortly after the burial itself. Seti's mummy was taken out of its stone sarcophagus, wrenching its head off in the process, and eventually stashed with more than 40 other royal mummies in a small tomb at a place now called Dair al-Bari. This cache was discovered in 1881. At some point in the very distant past, there was a person whose footsteps shuffled through the mostly empty stone-walled chambers of Seti's tomb as he or she departed for the last time. Sometime later, a flash flood deposited boulders and silt across the tomb's entrance, and it was sealed. Then, more than 2,000 years passed in darkness and silence. The next human being to set foot in Seti's tomb was an eccentric, audacious, and very tall Italian named Giovanni Battista Belzoni. Age 38, a former circus performer, the man who had once been billed as the Great Belzoni, was, at least in some circles, about to live up to his ostentatious nickname. In the course of ten days in October 1817, Belzoni had an almost incredible run of luck in the Valley of the Kings, discovering four previously forgotten tombs, in addition to the ones he'd already discovered, and the various other adventures he'd had and would go on to have in the mysterious land of the pharaohs. His exploits brought him fame, recognition, and some degree of fortune, which, as we'll see, was overwhelmingly the point. In modern popular culture, we have visions of archaeologists and rogues excavating old tombs and going on fantastic adventures involving artifacts from the past. This class of hero has a long tradition, from Alan Quatermain in the novels of H. Ryder Haggard, which began publication in the 1880s, to the movie character Indiana Jones, 
and of course the video game character Lara Croft of the Tomb Raider series. Such figures are almost purely fictional. If you've ever met an archaeologist in real life, they're about as far from Lara Croft and Indiana Jones as you can get. This really is not that surprising if you understand that archaeology is an academic discipline, and academics are, with very few exceptions, some of the most boring people on Earth. Take it from me, I know. Many people find this show intensely boring, and compared to most academics, I'm positively an extrovert. What is surprising is that once upon a time, there really were people in real life like Indiana Jones and Lara Croft. They weren't archaeologists, at least in the modern sense, which has the effect of stripping away the moral legitimacy of cracking open ancient tombs, the resting places of real people who died in the past, and removing their artifacts, whether for financial or intellectual gain, or more likely, a little bit of both. Giovanni Belzoni was one of these people. Given what he did in the Valley of the Kings in the 18-teens and why he did it, it's hard not to describe him generously as a tomb raider or ungenerously as a grave robber. But his discoveries did significantly advance our understanding of the culture and history of ancient Egypt, one of the most mysterious and fascinating societies of the past. And Belzoni was part and parcel of a process of intellectual and cultural discovery of Egypt that reached its peak at the end of the second decade a process that included one of the most important and dramatic breakthroughs in intellectual history, the decipherment of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. That process was set in motion by the same events and circumstances that brought Belzoni to Egypt during the 18-teens. So, this is a story with a lot of connections to other events and people, not just in the second decade, but in world history as a whole. Belzoni's story has as much to do with Napoleon, a frequent character on this show, as it does with kings who lived and died more than a thousand years before Christ walked in Galilee. That's truly the magic of history, how its stories interconnect, weaving a tapestry of time and space that stretches literally across millennia. So join me now as we seek knowledge, illumination, and the occasional ill-gotten gain in the mysterious land of the pharaohs, the true story of a 19th century tomb raider. Good evening. I'm going to begin tonight's episode not with announcements, I'll give you a break from those for a change, and not by delving immediately into our subject, but with a personal story from my own past. It is relevant to our subject. I've been fascinated by ancient Egypt since I was six years old. In the 1970s, President Richard Nixon, who was then trying to improve American relations with Egypt after the Yom Kippur War of 1973, personally asked Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, to allow the fabulous artifacts from Tutankhamun's tomb to tour the United States. Sadat agreed, although the exhibition didn't reach American shores until long after Nixon was out of office as a result of Watergate. In 1976, New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art organized seven exhibitions of the Tutankhamun artifacts at various art museums in the United States. MoMA published a companion piece book called Treasures of Tutankhamun, full of glossy close-up photos of the amazing Egyptian art treasures that British archaeologist Howard Carter had preserved when he found the tomb in 1922. My mother bought a copy of this book. I now have it, the self-same copy she bought more than 40 years ago. In fact, it's sitting on my desk as I write the script for this episode. This book and its incredible pictures fired my six-year-old imagination like nothing else. Here were the real artifacts of a long-dead civilization, these incredible works of art that still existed in the late 20th century, made to honor a boy king who died more than 3,000 years ago. In the late 70s, my family lived in the Central Valley of California. My sister had a medical condition that caused us to make periodic visits to an advanced medical center in San Francisco, about a two-hour drive from where we lived. In the summer of 1979, the Treasures of Tutankhamun exhibit was touring at the de Young Memorial Museum in San Francisco. There was no question of us going to see it. The tickets for the exhibit were sold out months in advance and were super expensive anyway, far beyond the reach of my decidedly unwealthy family. But I was so amazed by the pictures of the artifacts and so interested in ancient Egypt that on one of these San Francisco medical visits, my mom decided she'd take me to the de Young Museum, if only to see the gift shop. My mother recalls this incident. 
she and I shared it over a glass of wine just a month or so ago, she recalls that it was in the last six days of the exhibit, which I looked up online, closed at the de Young Museum on September 30th, 1979. The gift shop was totally full of King Tut-related merchandise, including reproductions of the artifacts themselves. I knew these weren't the real thing, but supposedly I picked up a replica of one of the alabaster jars found in Tutankhamun's tomb, and I asked the sales lady, is this real alabaster? Yeah, I was an insufferable and precocious kid. It was not real alabaster, of course, but even the cheap porcelain version cost $300, way out of our means. Anyway, an employee of the de Young Museum, a young man who I think was a janitor, observed me fawning over all the faux tut artifacts and was amazed that I seemed to know so much about them. He got talking to my mother. He asked her, so you've seen the exhibit? She says, well, no, we couldn't get tickets, but my son is so interested that I thought we'd at least see the gift shop. So then this guy, a total stranger, he said, come back tonight at six and I'll take him through. I'm an employee. Imagine the dilemma my mother faced. You can grant your six-year-old son's fondest wish in the world, but at the cost of delivering him into the hands of a male stranger, a janitor she met in a museum gift shop. If this happened in another era, not only wouldn't she have let me go, but the janitor probably wouldn't even have offered. This was one of the only times in my life that I could consider myself lucky to have lived through part of the 70s. I can't remember the janitor's name, but holy crap do I remember the exhibit. It was incredible. It was astounding seeing all these things in real life behind glass, but real. These things that were made by hand 3,000 years ago, inlaid with gold and precious stones, absolutely priceless treasures, some of the most amazing works of art the human species has ever created, and I saw them with my own eyes. Staring into the glass eyes of the incredible gold funeral mask of Tutankhamun, that's a moment I will never forget as long as I live. Going back a moment to Indiana Jones, imagine being him staring at that gold idol in the Peruvian temple. That's what it was really like. So I understand the incredible fascination that Egyptian artifacts and anything connected with ancient Egypt has. Years later, when I grew up and became a metalhead, one of my favorite death metal bands was called Nile, a band that continually riffed off the rituals and oddities of the death-obsessed Egyptians. Let's go back a bit from San Francisco in the 1970s to Egypt in the 1790s. Before we get to the story of the great Belzoni and his tomb-raiding exploits, you have to understand a little bit about how ancient Egypt got on the radar screen of Western culture in the first place. And that has everything to do with one of our favorite perennial characters here on Second Decade, the little general who fancied himself an emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte. Before he was an emperor, or even before he was first consul and the military dictator of France, Bonaparte was on his way up, and in 1798 his world tour took him to the mouth of the Nile at Alexandria. France was then at war with Britain, and Napoleon's strategic objective was to split Britain off from her richest colony, India. This was decades before the Suez Canal was built, but Egypt was still the choke point for British communication with its eastern possessions. Hitler would try the same strategy equally unsuccessfully in the 1940s. I don't need to go into exhaustive details, but suffice it to say Bonaparte's navy got clowned by Admiral Nelson at the Battle of the Nile, but he did win a significant land battle against the forces of the Ottoman Empire, who controlled Egypt at that time, and for three years, from 1798 to 1801, French troops occupied Egypt. Some in Egypt welcomed French presence because it was seen as a wedge that might eventually split Egypt off from the Ottoman Empire. Indeed, while he was pretending to be the ruler of Egypt, Napoleon gained the admiration of one Muhammad Ali, not the boxer, obviously, but an Albanian mercenary who sometimes worked for the Ottomans, but who also yearned to take power in Egypt in his own right. In the meantime, the occupation of Egypt proved irresistible to historians and academics back in France. Here was the opportunity to poke around in those ancient crumbling temples and to make rubbings of inscrutable hieroglyphics, and perhaps more compellingly, to scarf up a bunch of ancient Egyptian artifacts and haul them back to France. In July 1799, a group of soldiers rebuilding the defenses of Fort Julien, near a town on the Nile Delta that the Europeans call Rosetta, they uncovered a strange black rock sticking out of the sand. The rock had lots of little marks carved into it, apparently in three different languages. One was Greek, one an Egyptian language called Demotic, and one ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. The Rosetta Stone commanded attention from the moment of its discovery. 
If it was, as it appeared to be, the same text in three different languages, it could prove to be the key to deciphering Egyptian hieroglyphics, a language completely unknown in 1799, but which obviously had significant implications for understanding the history of ancient Egypt. Napoleon himself inspected the Rosetta Stone in August 1799 in Cairo, just before he returned to France. Within a few months, he fermented a coup against the weak revolutionary government of France and became the dictator of the country, and eventually, in 1804, its emperor. The French didn't fare so well in Egypt. Constantly hassled by both the British and the Ottoman Turks, the French managed to hang on by the skin of their teeth, but only for another two years. In March 1801, the British landed another force, and the French, under the command of General Jacques-Francois Manot, were bottled up in the city of Alexandria, which the British put under siege. They brought most of the artifacts they'd collected over the past three years with them. Manot was forced to surrender in August. At that point, all the archaeological treasures collected by the French, including the Rosetta Stone, came into the possession of the British as spoils of war. Manot threatened to destroy them rather than let the Brits have them, but ultimately he relented. The Rosetta Stone was first exhibited in the British Museum in 1802, and has been there ever since, despite repeated requests by the government of Egypt that it be returned. So that's the background, how Europeans came to be fascinated by ancient Egypt at the dawn of the 19th century. At about this same time, the towering figure of Giovanni Belzoni enters our story, through a roundabout path. Belzoni was something of a misfit. He was born in Padua in northern Italy, the walled city where Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew takes place. Belzoni had something of a growing spurt as a teenager. In fact, he wound up being six foot seven inches tall, positively a giant by early 19th century standards. In 1794, at the age of 16, Belzoni wound up in Rome. He said he was going to become a monk, but Napoleon's occupation of Rome in 1798 changed that for whatever reason. Next, he began to study hydraulics, which is an important detail, as we'll see. By 1801, Belzoni was now living in Holland and earning his living as a barber. He seems to have gotten into some trouble in Holland. One source says that he fled England to avoid going to jail, for what charge I couldn't find out. But in England, where he moved in 1803 and married Sarah Bonnet, he put both his wanderlust and his towering frame to good use. He joined a circus as the strongman and was billed under the names the Patagonian Samson and, of course, the Great Belzoni. Belzoni's skill as an entertainer brought him to Spain to entertain the British army, then under the command of the Duke of Wellington, the eventual victor of Waterloo, on the Peninsular Campaign. Eventually, Mr. and Mrs. Belzoni wound up in Malta, which was also a British possession. While in Malta, Belzoni met agents of Pasha Muhammad Ali, remember him. In the intervening years, Ali had managed to take over Egypt, filling the power vacuum left after the French were kicked out. Ali was nominally a company man of the Ottoman Empire, but in effect he was pretty autonomous. He declared himself the Khedive of Egypt in 1805, and the Ottomans, who'd always had a tough time hanging on to Egypt, thought he was better than the alternatives jockeying for power. So Ali stayed. Anyway, Belzoni, who seems to have been quite a persuasive talker, somehow got Pasha Ali's agents in Malta all interested in a hydraulic machine that he, Belzoni, proposed to build. The machine was apparently a water wheel powered by oxen. I'm kind of envisioning something like the wheel Arnold Schwarzenegger is chained to in Conan the Barbarian, but whatever. Its purpose, according to Belzoni, was to raise the waters of the Nile to irrigate farm fields. Since Pasha Ali was very interested in remaking and reforming Egypt along modern lines, this application would naturally be right up his alley. In May 1815, Belzoni sailed for Egypt together with his wife and a servant boy, James Curtin. They traveled to Cairo to see the Pasha and conducted several demonstrations of the water wheel. Although one test was apparently successful, another one ended disastrously, when the Pasha decided to test it, not with oxen, but with 15 men pushing it. So it really was like the Conan the Barbarian thing. Belzoni's servant, James Curtin, went in with the men, but something went wrong, and he was thrown off the machine and broke his leg. Pasha thought this was a bad omen and immediately decided that he wasn't going to buy Belzoni's hydraulic contraption. So much for that idea. I hope poor Jim Curtin got paid well for breaking his leg on Belzoni's cockamamie machine, but I have a feeling he got stiffed. So now the Belzonis, having temporarily relocated to Egypt, found themselves broke. At this point, fate intervened. 
Belzoni went to the offices of the British Agency in Cairo and there became acquainted with a man named Henry Salt, who in 1815 had been appointed general consul in Egypt. Now, if you're wondering exactly what a general consul would be doing in a province of the Ottoman Empire, ruled semi-autonomously by a man like Muhammad Ali Pasha, you're not alone. I wondered that too. I mean, I guess a general consul handles the legal affairs of his nation's citizens who happen to be in that place. Here's the thing, though, and I know a couple of general consuls personally, it's a part-time job. What Salt was really doing there becomes clear when you understand that the mission that Salt, who had just met Belzoni, decided to send him on. See, there was this huge stone statue, the head and shoulders piece of a giant statue of Pharaoh Ramses II that had been recently found in Thebes, a statue called the Young Memnon by the British. With the acquiescence of the Muhammad Ali government, Salt had secured the rights to bring it up to Cairo and send it to England. He decided to send Belzoni on this task. And the museum? The museum gets the art when we're finished. Oh, yes. Henry Salt's job in Egypt was to find artifacts, mostly for the British Museum, and ship as many of them as possible back to Europe. In fact, Britain wasn't the only country involved in this kind of thing. John Romer, the prominent British Egyptologist, put it this way in his book on the Valley of the Kings, one of the sources for this episode. Quote, At that time, several of the European consuls in Cairo, with the encouragement of Muhammad Ali, were engaged in digging at the ancient sites of Egypt. Very large numbers of antiquities were collected and usually offered to the European governments, or sold in a succession of huge auctions. The agents of the foreign consuls divided Thebes like the concessions of a gold rush. End quote. So, in the summer of 1816, Henry Salt gave Giovanni Belzoni a bunch of money to hire local workers, which the Europeans called fellas, and a roving commission not only to bring the young Memnon statue up the Nile so it could be shipped to the British Museum, but also to collect any other artifacts he might find. Belzoni's career as a tomb raider had begun. Belzoni's first job as a quote-unquote collector of Egyptian artifacts went pretty much according to plan. The piece of the Ramses II statue, called the Young Memnon, weighed several tons, and it took about two weeks to unearth it from the desert sands, transport it on wooden rollers, and put it aboard a ship bound for Alexandria. It arrived in Britain more or less intact, and it's been displayed at the British Museum in London ever since. I have in fact seen it in person. Henry Salt, the British consul in Egypt, was delighted at Belzoni's feat of daring and engineering, and he started to think, hey, this guy could be really useful. No one had ever transported an artifact as big as the young Memnon before, and the proof that Belzoni could handle these big heavy things opened up a whole new universe of artifacts that could be snatched up and sent to Europe. Salt had a specific piece in mind. In 1768, a Scottish explorer named James Bruce had rediscovered an ancient tomb in the Valley of the Kings that had been open since antiquity. No excavation was really required. The tomb, that of Pharaoh Ramses III, contained a gigantic granite sarcophagus that had once housed the king's mummy. The mummy itself was no longer there, also having been moved to the cache at Dair al-Bari. This beautiful stone coffin, made from pink granite, was decorated with carvings of the Egyptian goddesses Isis and Nephthys, spreading their wings. But the thing weighed several tons and was in the burial chamber of the tomb, known as Bruce's tomb, which was the deepest tomb then known in the Valley of the Kings. Was Belzoni, the former circus strongman and sometime hydraulic engineer, up to the challenge? Not only was he, but he did one better. When he reached the tomb in late 1816, Belzoni found, in the deep burial chamber where the sarcophagus was still sitting there, a layer of silt and stones along the floor deposited by floods centuries ago. Digging around in this layer, he discovered the giant flat lid of the sarcophagus, which apparently no one else had realized was there. It must have been thrown on the floor when ancient robbers pillaged the tomb centuries ago. The lid bore a statue of the king, Ramses III. Because Belzoni's written instructions referred only to the sarcophagus, not the lid, he decided the lid was a separate piece, which he would claim personally. He supervised the removal of both pieces out of the tomb, but at one point the lid slipped out of the workman's grasp and fell to the floor, breaking off about a third of it in the lower right-hand corner. Still, it wasn't a bad score. After being dragged on rollers for four miles down to the river, across a special road that Belzoni had his fellah workmen build, 
the sarcophagus made its way to Alexandria, and Henry Salt sold it to the king of France, Louis XVIII. To this day, the sarcophagus is displayed in the Louvre in Paris. As for the lid, now restored, it wound up in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, England. So, with three major and very profitable wins under his belt, Belzoni decided that tomb raiding was definitely the business to be in. He returned to the Valley of the Kings and started wandering around, looking for sinkholes and faults among the rocks that might be telltale signs of undiscovered tombs. The Valley of the Kings is really a fascinating place, both historically and geologically. It looks pretty unassuming on the ground level, a bunch of rocky, sandy bluffs winding through the desert. Under the surface sand, there's a 1,000-foot-thick layer of limestone. This was the raw material into which ancient Egyptian architects started to carve royal tombs in about 1540 BCE, just after Egypt was reunited in the wake of the expulsion of the Hyksos people, who temporarily ruled Egypt in the middle of its ancient history. Although regular rainfall is obviously rare in the Egyptian desert, the Valley of the Kings is a natural channel for flash floods, usually caused by violent thunderstorms. We've already seen several references to layers of rocks and silt that have affected the ancient tombs, or in some cases buried them completely. So, between the Egyptians' desire to hide the tombs of their kings where robbers wouldn't find them, and natural causes like silt and flood depositions, some of these tombs could be pretty hard to find. In 1816, no one really knew how many royal tombs were hidden under the sand. Belzoni was convinced there were several. Not far from the tomb of Amenophis III, which had been opened since antiquity, Belzoni found something that he thought was significant. He wrote in his memoirs, quote, A heap of stones appeared to be detached from the mass. I happened to have a stick with me, and on thrusting it into the holes among the stones, I found it to penetrate very deep. On removing a few stones, we perceived that the sand ran inwards, and in fact we were so near the entrance into a tomb that in less than two hours all the stones were taken away, and I caused some candles to be brought, and I went in, followed by the Arabs." End quote. In flickering candlelight, Belzoni and his fellahs saw beautiful painted frescoes on the walls of the ancient tomb. Decorated in yellow and red, along one wall was a strange scene that showed three rows of primates resembling baboons, which caused the Arab workers to informally name the tomb Cherbet el Garud, meaning the Tomb of the Monkeys. This tomb, like most others found in the valley, had been plundered centuries ago. The sarcophagus was smashed into pieces, and Belzoni noticed that certain hieroglyphic symbols had been deliberately chipped away and defaced. This had not been done recently, but probably in ancient Egyptian times. Though he couldn't know it at the time, especially since hieroglyphics were indecipherable in 1816, Belzoni had discovered an important source for what we know of the tumultuous political and religious history of the 18th dynasty of ancient Egypt. The tomb he'd found belonged to a minor pharaoh named Ai, that's spelled A-Y, who was the immediate successor of King Tutankhamun. Ai was himself succeeded by a ruthless and power-hungry general named Horemheb. Under his reign, workmen went around chiseling off the names of his predecessors, whom he deemed to be usurpers of the throne. He seems to have especially hated Pharaoh I, because his royal names, or cartouches, were expunged from almost every monument in Egypt. As a result, I is something of a mysterious figure in Egyptian history. Much of this would not be known until the decipherment of hieroglyphics in the 1820s, and the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb a century later. Whatever Horemheb had done with I's mummy, we have no idea. It was certainly not in the tomb when Belzoni found it in 1816, and it's not in the Dair al-Bahari cache with so many other of the royal mummies. My understanding is that it's never been found. Belzoni left the tomb of Ai open. Many Egyptologists have visited it since. It's still accessible today in what's called the West Valley and is known as WV-23. Now flush with a round of amazing discoveries, Belzoni got back to Cairo in December 1816. Immediately he, his wife, and Henry Salt began plotting new expeditions to various Egyptian sites. The next expedition would include Henry Salt's secretary, William Beechey. The next target was the Temple of Abu Simbel, one of the most famous ancient Egyptian sites. This particular expedition was apparently not for loot, there was nothing left at Abu Simbel to steal, and Belzoni's purpose there was to clear the great monument of sand and to make careful drawings of its carvings and frescoes. 
Belzoni and Saul weren't really welcome at Abu Simbel and the other big temples, which the agents of other foreign governments, particularly the French, were combing over. Belzoni ultimately made a deal with his competitors. He'd leave the traditional temples like Abu Simbel and Karnak alone and stick to the Valley of the Kings, if they respected his turf. This wasn't a bad deal. Though it was much harder to find new stuff in the Valley of the Kings, the possibilities for previously unknown treasures were much higher, as well as the potential gain. In August 1817, Belzoni was back on site in the western part of the valley, near where he'd discovered the Tomb of Ai the year before. This is from Belzoni's memoirs. Quote, I set the men to work near a hundred yards from the tomb which I discovered the year before. And when they had got a little below the surface, they came to some large stones which had evidently been put there by those who closed the tomb. Having removed these stones, I perceived the rock had been cut on both sides and found a passage leading downwards. End quote. At the end of this passage, they found a stone wall. Coming back the next day, Belzoni employed a very unsubtle method to get into the tomb. He built a battering ram and had his fellahs smash down the wall with brute force. Real careful stewardship of archaeological evidence there, Giovanni. To continue his account, quote, We immediately entered and found ourselves on a staircase, eight feet wide and ten feet high, at the bottom of which were four mummies, in their cases lying flat on the ground with their heads toward the outside. Farther on there were four more lying in the same direction. The cases were all painted and one had a large covering thrown over it exactly like the pall upon coffins of the present day. End quote. The tomb that Belzoni discovered, which is known as WV-25, was not the tomb of a king or royal family, but probably families of the priests who were in charge of the royal burials. Later analysis showed these mummies were from pretty late in the ancient Egyptian period, the 21st or 22nd dynasty, at least 300 years after the era of Tutankhamun, Ai, and Horemheb. The tomb was also incomplete. The workmen apparently never finished digging it out, so it might have been used as a makeshift grave for the priest's families in a much later era. And aside from the mummies themselves, there were no artifacts. After this discovery, Belzoni decided to change tacks and concentrate on the eastern part of the valley. Ancient Greek sources rumored that there were 47 royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings. To date, late summer and early fall 1817, less than half that number had actually been discovered. There had to be more loot down there somewhere. Belzoni's incredible run of luck was about to begin. In the 1740s, a previous English adventurer, Richard Pocock, wrote of finding a tomb in this area and entering its upper rooms. Belzoni apparently rediscovered the same tomb on October 9, 1817. The entrance corridors were totally filled with dirt. As the fellas cleared it away, beautifully painted wall frescoes began to appear. The tomb, now open, was lit by daylight. The sun touched these ancient paintings for the first time in thousands of years. The tomb Belzoni discovered on October 9th belonged not to a pharaoh, but to an Egyptian prince named Ramses Montuhir Kopesh F, the son of the king Ramses IX, who died about 1100 BCE. This tomb, like WV25, was unfinished. The prince apparently died before his father, who was extraordinarily long-lived, and for whatever reason he was socked away here, in this unfinished tomb, whose fairly limited space was made up for by the most stunning paintings ever found in an Egyptian tomb up until that time. Prince Montuhir Kopesh F. himself was apparently not in the tomb when Belzoni found it. His memoirs don't mention anything about mummies, but another source, not long after, mentions that this tomb contained two mummies laying in a trench at the back of the tomb. If they were there, they probably weren't royals, but possibly, as tended to happen, mummies stashed there hundreds of years later for whatever reason. But there were no artifacts. This tomb had also apparently been robbed and stripped bare, most likely in antiquity. Aside from the frescoes, the only other treasure in the tomb was a set of wooden doors, painted with two cobras, maybe a warning or a curse. It was impractical to detach the doors, but given Belzoni's track record in hauling heavy statues and sarcophagi out of tombs, one wonders why he let this one go. Incredibly, Belzoni's expedition discovered another, completely separate tomb on that very same day, October 9, 1817. He had several teams of fellahs digging in various parts of the valley at the same time, and he seems to have shuttled back and forth between the digging sites. Only 100 yards from the tomb of please don't make me pronounce that name again, the prince he'd just found, the expedition discovered the entrance to another tomb. 
As Belzoni told it, quote, This was more extensive, but entirely new and without a single painting in it. It had been searched by the ancients, as we perceived at the end of the first passage, a brick wall which stopped the entrance and had been forced through. After passing this brick wall, you descend a staircase and proceed through another corridor, at the end of which is the entrance to a pretty large chamber with a single pillar in the center and not plastered in any part. At one corner of this chamber we found two mummies in the ground quite naked, without cloth or case. They were females, and their hair pretty long and well-preserved, though it was easily separated from the head by pulling it a little. At one side of this room is a small door leading into a small chamber, in which we found the fragments of several earthen vessels and also pieces of alabaster, but so decayed that we could not join one to the other. On the top of the staircase we found an earthen jar quite perfect, with a few hieroglyphics on it. End quote. This tomb, called KV-21, is quite mysterious. It was certainly not clear to Belzoni who'd been buried here or why. Interestingly, KV-21 was sealed again, apparently in the 1880s, by debris carried by floodwaters. It remained sealed until an expedition in 1989 relocated it. Unfortunately, they found the mummies in pieces, and the artifacts Belzoni had mentioned were smashed. There was modern graffiti on the wall bearing a date, 1826. Whoever pillaged the tomb in that year is not known. But there's even another, spookier story connected with KV-21 and the two women buried there 3,500 years ago. One of the grislier discoveries in Tutankhamun's tomb, excavated in the 1920s, was a set of two tiny coffins bearing Tutankhamun's name laid head to foot. When unwrapped, they were found to contain mummified fetuses, probably children who were stillborn at seven or eight months. In 2010, DNA testing showed that one of the mummified women found by Belzoni in 1817 was the mother of these two fetuses. Was one of these women then Tutankhamun's wife, who was said in historical records to have been named Ankesenamun, and who was supposedly the daughter of Nefertiti? The jury is still out on this one, but it's a haunting possibility. Even after this amazing run of luck, two tomb discoveries on the same day, Belzoni wasn't done yet. On the next day, October 10, 1817, while Belzoni was showing around William Beachy, who as you remember was Henry Salt's secretary, word reached the party that the Fellas had found a third tomb. Belzoni and Beachy rushed to the scene. Belzoni wrote, Having proceeded through a passage 32 feet long and 8 feet wide, I descended a staircase of 28 feet and reached a tolerably large and well-painted room. I then made a signal from below to the travelers that they might descend, and they entered into the tomb. We found a sarcophagus of granite with two mummies in it, and in a corner statue standing erect, six feet six inches high, and beautifully cut out of sycamore wood. We also found a number of little images of wood representing symbolical figures. Some had a lion's head, others a fox's, others a monkey's. One had a land tortoise instead of a head. The sarcophagus was covered with hieroglyphics merely painted or outlined. It faces south by east. End quote. Belzoni had discovered the tomb of Pharaoh Ramses I, founder of the 19th dynasty and the king who had been chosen to succeed Horemheb. Remember him. Ramses didn't reign long, but his rule was an important transitional phase in Egyptian history. He seems to have died about 1290 BCE. Ramses' tomb appears to have been hastily finished. The paintings and inscriptions Belzoni found on the walls and the sarcophagus looked kind of crude, sort of a rush job. Egyptian tombs, lavish as they were, took years to build, so probably the king died unexpectedly and there was a rush to finish everything. The sarcophagus of Ramses I pretty incredibly still remains in a tomb that Belzoni discovered. As for artifacts and statues, Belzoni and Henry Salt now finally had some swag to sell back in England. Salt eventually sold the statues to the British Museum in 1821 for a handsome price. Now undeniably on a roll, Belzoni continued his excavations in the valley, searching particularly for depressions where floodwaters carved channels into the ground. Near the tomb of Ramses I, there was exactly such a depression. Using his background as a hydrologist, Belzoni figured that more water had coursed into this depression than it could have contained. In short, there was probably a tomb underneath it. They started digging. On October 17, 1817, Belzoni's Falaz discovered rock that had been cut by human hands. The next day, 18 feet down, they found the entrance to yet another tomb, the most magnificent and substantial find yet. 
As the sunlight penetrated the cracks they'd made in the earth, it illuminated not just painted frescoes, but hieroglyphics carved into the rock in relief. In contrast to Ramsey's tomb, this one was lavishly finished. This tomb was a different architecture than the others. Longer, deeper, and more expansive, with lots of corridors and annexes, all beautifully decorated and painted, the tomb had a strange deep well dropping 30 feet down and a central burial chamber. The burial vault, its ceiling painted blue and its walls gold, is possibly the most magnificent ancient Egyptian room ever found, far more lavish than the comparatively simple decorations of Tutankhamun's tomb, which was much smaller and not nearly as ornate. The tomb of Seti I was something of a maze. Belzoni found room after room, some walled off from each other with rubble and rocks, and all but one were fabulously painted and indescribably beautiful. And to Belzoni's delight, there were artifacts, little figurines called Ushabtis, which were kind of like voodoo dolls. They were likenesses of the dead king who would be called upon to do service in the afterlife, in his place. Most of these little figures were wooden a foot high, but some were glazed blue, with lapis, and had hieroglyphics covering their lower portions. The quote that opened this episode is a poem from one of those figurines, meant for the afterlife. The final chamber in the tomb of Seti I was puzzling. It was undecorated, 50 feet long, supported by four large pillars, the wall's whitewashed plaster. Laying on the floor was the mummified carcass of a bull. Apparently it was put in the tomb as an offering of sustenance for the dead king in the afterlife. Because of this discovery, the tomb is sometimes known as the Apis tomb. By some accounts, there were more than 800 Ushabti figures scattered throughout this room. The tomb had undoubtedly been plundered in ancient times, but apparently the robbers didn't think these little trinkets were worth stealing. Not so for Giovanni Belzoni and the agent of Henry Salt, but the greatest treasure was yet to come. In the burial chamber, empty, Belzoni found a magnificent coffin made entirely of alabaster. The coffin was 9 feet 5 inches long, 3 feet 7 inches wide, and the fine white stone it's made of is 2 inches thick. Reportedly, it was translucent and glowed when a light source was put inside of it. The coffin was found with its lid on the floor surrounded by rubble and debris. Whoever had left it in this condition or why is lost to history. The discovery of the tomb of Seti I was, very much like the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb 105 years later, an instant media sensation. Once word got back to Europe, which even in the age of sailing ship didn't take that long, newspapers all over the continent were reporting on the magnificent discovery in the Valley of the Kings. Various representatives of the British aristocracy beat a hasty path to Egypt to see what had been discovered, and Belzoni's fame and fortune were now secure. But so many mysteries remained. The mummy of Seti I was not found in the tomb. It would be another few decades before the mysterious cache at Dair al-Bahari was found, in which the remains of Seti, as well as a lot of other dead Egyptian kings and queens, were discovered in hasty and haphazard stacks. Although amazing for the time, artifacts found by Belzoni in the tomb, those 800 little Ushabti figures, raise more questions than they answer. Evidently, the original tomb raiders in ancient Egyptian times or soon after left them behind, but what other fabulous objects which were perceived as valuable might have originally been buried with the king? Given the incredible loot that was discovered in the tomb of Tutankhamun, a much more minor king whose tomb was far less ostentatious, the treasure that must have accompanied Seti into the afterlife almost beggars the imagination. What happened to it all? If it was plundered in antiquity, as seems likely, how many centuries did it take for these treasures to be melted down, sold, traded, broken, or lost? What would you give to have seen the tomb of Seti I, not at its empty and pillaged state of silence that Giovanni Belzoni discovered it in, in 1817, but as it originally appeared, just after the pharaoh's death over 3,000 years ago? These are the kinds of questions that continue to draw people to the subject of ancient Egypt and its mysterious and haunting treasures. There are several postscripts to the story of Giovanni Belzoni and his incredible and lucky discoveries in the Valley of the Kings in 1817. The alabaster sarcophagus of Seti I was sold to European collectors, though not, as Henry Salt apparently hoped at first, to the British Museum, who balked at the price he asked, £2,000 sterling, a princely sum in the second decade. Ultimately, the sarcophagus wound up in the collection of another British collector, Sir John Soane, in 1824. The London climate and the vagaries of modern air pollution have turned the brilliant bone-white surfaces a dull brown. Britain's stewardship of Egyptian artifacts has, on the whole, had a pretty mixed record. 
Belzoni's discoveries kept alive the flame of fascination that Europe had with ancient Egyptian treasures. Even before his discoveries, scholars back in France and England had been studying the Rosetta Stone and its tantalizing possibility of a breakthrough in deciphering its languages. Indeed, it was a young schoolteacher from Grenoble, France, Jean-Francois Champollion, who noticed a correlation in the text between two names repeated on the stone, Ptolemaeus and Cleopatra. This was the discovery that cracked the previously inscrutable code of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. In 1822, just after the end of the second decade, Champollion announced his discovery in a famous letter to the head of a Paris academy that had also been studying ancient Egyptian writing. Now, quite suddenly, the tombs that Belzoni had discovered became documents of history, as well as examples of architectural treasures, the names of the people who those tombs belonged to, and their incredible life stories, suddenly became cognizable to the modern world. Belzoni continued to have various other adventures throughout Egypt and Africa, ultimately not returning to Europe until 1819, and only then temporarily. He earned a comfortable living, both from the artifacts he scavenged from Egypt and sold to museums and collectors, and from his memoirs published in 1819. But restlessness was always his curse. In 1823, he set out for a fresh set of adventures in West Africa. He died in December 1823 in the Benin Empire in what's now Nigeria, possibly of dysentery, though there are also reports that he was robbed and murdered. He was 45. Henry Salt, the British consul and agent of plundered treasures, met a similar end. He died in Egypt in 1827, aged 47, of what I'm not sure. Muhammad Ali Pasha managed to hold on to power in Egypt for several more decades, until 1848, when he was too old, sick, and senile to call the shots anymore. He was succeeded by his son, and the Ottomans pretty much forced to recognize him. Muhammad Ali died in August 1849. Men like Giovanni Belzoni and Henry Salt, and others like them, were instrumental in bringing Egyptian treasures to European museums. The years of the second decade and the years surrounding it were the most intensive phase of European appropriation of artifacts from other countries. Most, though not all, of these artifacts remain in museums in Western Europe, despite recent efforts of their countries of origin to repatriate them. We can't talk about people like Belzoni without facing the implications of the things they did and why they did them. Let's be completely honest about this kind of activity. It was, and still is, a form of imperialism. A Western European country like Britain or France, a colonizer, one of the few world empires in the second decade, involving itself in developing places like Egypt and stripping those places of their own history and artifacts is the most literal form of a cultural appropriation that you could imagine. The fact that this repatriation of artifacts was authorized, even encouraged at the time, by Muhammad Ali Pasha honestly doesn't make it smell much better. Muhammad Ali was not Egyptian, he was born in Albania, and had no more right to determine the cultural fate of the Egyptian people than King George III, in whose name artifacts like the Rosetta Stone were delivered to England. Today, we cloak motives like this in terms of intellectual understanding. The characters of Indiana Jones and Lara Croft are, at least ostensibly, archaeologists, that's a justification we tell ourselves as to why it's morally okay for them to plunder ancient artifacts in the name of knowledge and understanding. That belongs in a museum! Giovanni Belzoni, however, had no such justifications in 1817. He was not an academic. He was a circus performer. He didn't discover these tombs to advance our historical knowledge. He went to Egypt in search of profit and little else. Although his discoveries had the effect of advancing our historical understanding of ancient Egypt, he didn't go to the Valley of the Kings with that objective in mind. He went there for one reason, and one reason only, to plunder ancient Egyptian artifacts and to sell them in Europe for a profit. In recent years, the government of Egypt has asked European countries, including Great Britain, France, and Germany, to return artifacts they acquired in this period, the 1790s through the second decade and beyond. Most of these countries have resisted these requests, to be fair, the modern nation of Egypt has very little to do with the culture that thrived on the banks of the Nile thousands of years ago. Modern Egypt descends from the Muslim conquests of North Africa in the 7th century CE, long after the last ancient Egyptian was buried in the Valley of the Kings. So a legitimate question arises. To whose culture, if anyone's, does Seti I and Tutankhamun belong? Does the modern Egyptian government have any greater claim to these artifacts than the British Museum or the Louvre does? I don't know the answer to that question. Fortunately, it's not my charge to solve. My job is to bring you the history as it really happened. 
believe I've done that. Whatever you may think of the broader issues is up to you to decide. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. I'd like to give a shout out to some fellow podcasters, including BT Newberg of the show Dead Ideas, which I highly recommend. It's a show about things that people once believed in, but don't anymore, and why. Really fun show that'll teach you a lot of interesting things about the past that you never thought of before. Also, again, have to mention one of my favorite podcasts, History by Hollywood. I've mentioned it several times now. I did a guest appearance on that show discussing the movie The Right Stuff. Great episode. I was very, very happy how that turned out. So big thanks to uh, Martin and Andrew who run that terrific show. Again, History by Hollywood, and I highly recommend it. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. I don't use Twitter anymore. My historical sources for this episode include the memoirs of Giovanni Belzoni, entitled Narrative of the Recent Operations and Discoveries Within the Pyramids, Temples, Tombs, and Excavations of Egypt and Nubia, published by H. Remy, Brussels, 1835, and Valley of the Kings by John Romer, Michael O'Mara Books Limited, 1981, an absolutely wonderful book. Also a very outdated but wonderful book I've loved literally for decades, Tutankhamun by Christiane Desrochers Noble Court, Doubleday and Company, 1965. I found a copy of this fairly obscure book in 1988, and I've loved it ever since. Some books stick with you forever. This is one of them. After 31 years, my copy is literally falling apart. Post a picture of it on the website. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.